1: Why do so many boys go quiet around puberty? Hormonal shifts have something to do with it, but there's much more. Stay tuned. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co hosts Jennifer L.W. Fink of BuildingBoys.net and Janet Allison of BoysAlive.com.
2: Why do so many boys go quiet around puberty, pull into themselves and their bedrooms, and no longer connect as freely with their parents or even their peers? The hormonal shifts of adolescence definitely have something to do with that. But there's more to it. Today's guest, Brendan Kwiatkowski, researches teenage boys' emotions, masculinities, and experiences. And he's found that the number one reason why boys restrict emotion and emotional expression is because they don't want to burden other people. They don't want to burden other people. The second reason is fear of judgment. Brendan, thank you so much for agreeing to join us today. We're going to dig right in and explore some of these deep topics.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: I feel like there's so much power to realizing that From a boy's perspective, in a lot of ways, they're trying to both protect other people. They don't want to burden other people. And I'm guessing that they have gotten this sense from society that, you know, guys handle their stuff on their own.
3: Yeah, exactly. Both those messages are are paramount. And in my research, those two reasons that you named were tied. Those are neck and neck for the main reasons. And often involved a bit of both and so um part of wanting to not burden other people is feeling like either the adults in their lives or the people in their lives won't be able yeah to handle their negativity what they view as negative emotions um and so they're trying to protect other people but they're also you can look at that in a way they're also trying to protect themselves from other people's discomfort as well Ah. Um, so it's a bit of both. And the fear of judgment is primarily from their peer group. Yeah, all these factors are related according to my teen- the teenage boys that I interviewed. It's all attributed to masculinity in part, except that there are life events that exacerbate or um, kind of accentuate the reasons why they might restrict their emotions and why they might feel like they're a burden. So a significant life event, like a parent's divorce, where there's a lot of emotions happening in the family. Already, a lot of people are dealing with a lot of stress. They don't wanna add on to that. And so I do think there's a lot of angles to to talk about this, but like one of them for sure, hopefully breaks the stereotype. Boys that don't share their emotions readily, generally speaking, it's not to be selfish about it, but actually is in part can be viewed as an act of care.
1: And it's not that they don't have the emotions to begin with.
3: They're there. It was an interesting um, personal anecdote from my research is that I compared the least emotionally restricted teenage boys and the most emotionally restricted teenage boys. And in my personal experience, I felt like the more emotionally restricted boys actually were more emotionally vulnerable with me in what they had to share. Um, And. Part of the reason could be that the boys that are emotionally expressive express it a lot, so they don't need to express it to me, whereas some of the boys, like this was their chance to talk. And I've never had a problem getting teenage boys to talk um, when they feel like the environment safe to do so.
2: There is so much value and importance and things to unpack in what you said there. I mean, first of all, parents, I want to go back and really highlight what he said, This is not an act of selfishness. So we hear so often, Janet, from moms, especially who feel shut out and who feel uh, unimportant and sometimes even not respected because they used to have this super close relationship with their son and now they don't. And it triggers all these worries, all these concerns. And many of these concerns are well-meaning, valid, but no, take some heart in what Brendan just told us. This isn't, it's not a selfish thing in most cases. This is not your son trying to hurt you. In some cases, in his own adolescent way, he's trying to protect you while protecting himself in this uh, constantly ever-changing, demanding environment that's giving him all these messages about this is what you have to do to be accepted as a guy.
3: Yeah. And the message that I need to be the shoulder to cry on, not someone else. I'm not the person to cry on someone else's shoulders. It really yeah. comes down in terms of parenting is how, how able as a parent are you to tolerate your children's distress without making it about your own emotions. And that as a parent is tough. Like my daughter goes as, as having a harder transition with kindergarten this year, a lot of emotions every morning, mm-hmm. um, mornings are, are tough. And it's easier as a parent, if I were to just be like, shut down her ability to express her emotions, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because that would be more comfortable for me if she just shut it down. But we know from attachment theory and stuff like that, is that the children that don't emote, and they look like they're well-adjusted, actually have the internal arousal of distress just as high, if not higher, than the kids who exhibit it externally
2: well that just hit me awfully close I feel like you totally described me as a child and yeah that oof, that's a lot this being able to tolerate sit with and accept our children's distress is you know Janet most of us did not grow up that way nope. it is so much easier especially Brendan you're trying to get out the door stop it stop mm-hmm. crying. Just put your shoes on, get in the car. And Mm -hmm. we do that. We're all going to do it from time to time. You know, important to note that we're talking about over time, and this is something that we adults can work on over time. And it does begin, ideally, if you work on that when your kids are little, that you can continue to be this safe person and safe expression of emotion as they move into this adolescence. But it's really it's not too late it's not like there's a too late time either Mm -hmm. is there
3: can i give parents some hope is that or some encouragement is that i think the the research i'm not sure if you heard of dr becky she is Mm -hmm. a parenting expert um that parents can miss the mark 70 percent of the time in their interactions with children and still have a a well-adjusted child but the most important thing she says is repair your ability to repair Mm -hmm. from those experiences Mm -hmm. so messing up 70 percent of the time missing the mark is a huge leeway to still repair
1: yes oh and as Jen said you know we did not grow up with this we did not have this modeled for us and I really feel like this is the generation you know Brendan you're parenting this new generation of kids it's this it's the time for it to switch. And you're, you're way wiser about all of this than I was when I was raising my 35-year-olds. And, you know, hopefully we had some emotional connection there. I think we did. but I'm
2: quite not... sure that you did. I have seen you <laughs> speak with your daughters.
1: <laughs> but not to this level of understanding that we have now. And then to bring in this research that you've done and these conversations that you've had with these teen boys about what is really going on inside of them gives gives us hope, gives parents of teens and all ages hope.
3: I, I hope it gives hope, yes.
2: You said something a little bit ago that caught my ear, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are like, wait, what? Um, you said you have had no problem getting teenage boys to talk to you. And right now, a bunch of listeners are going, wait, what? How How do you pull that off? Obviously, you're a guy and that's that's a different dynamic, but you're also a stranger to these boys that you were working with, right? So talk to us a little bit about what it took, what it takes to get teen boys to open up and also, you know, why you did this project. There are so many people, so many people in this world that look at teen boys and just kind of think, problem, write them off don't get curious, walk past them. Clearly you got curious.
3: Yeah. Um, There's a saying in research and social research that like all research is me search. And that is true to an extent. I was a teenage boy at one point in my life. So a bunch of questions and I'll try to pack them in order. So the first one is like how to get teenage boys to talk as a high school teacher and in doing research. That definitely is a can be a buy-in with students but i also want to recognize that there's a bunch of other factors that can that you can present in a way to change boys that gives you a bit more power or um more accessibility that you they might want to approach you and so i'm kind of the jack of all trades in that like i can f- talk and fit in with athleticism stuff like that i can have immediate connection points in a variety of topics I can go. I'm uh, putting quotations over my hands, like, but into nerds, uh, like I love Lord of the Rings. Um, there's not really a, a area that I don't know quite a bit about or can get really excited about. So that's one thing. But so what when,
2: you're te- so what you're telling me? I mean, for one, you're a guy, so they go, okay, this is even what they don't think it. Like you get this, you you have this lived experience. Um, and actually,
3: I should stop you there because it actually is interesting. Having said that, I just remembered that. The sub-theme of one of my big research findings is that generally speaking, the teenage boys were more comfortable sharing with females in their lives. Mm -hmm. So it was primarily their girlfriends were the number one and then mothers, but they felt more comfortable talking to, to women in their lives than to men because they felt like the judgment wasn't there or that they were better listeners or nurturers. So I should preface what all I'm saying Is that it's not a guarantee that just because you're a guy that they're going to listen to you, they might listen to you more, but they might not open up, vulnerable as well.
2: Sure, that's an excellent point, because I can see how you could approach a group of teenage guys, sort of figure out, you know, oh, okay, sports are the thing with you. We're going to talk about Lord of the Rings. I know you make music, too, so I know you've Mm -hmm. got, you know, you've got that angle. So you can get in there and make some connections, but whether or not they're going to open up about what's actually going on or just talk about the latest game is a whole nother thing.
3: So that's where my vulnerability comes in. Okay. And so I, I'm a firm believer of modeling the authenticity and vulnerability if you want someone to open up. And I never would expect a teenage boy to be honest with me at all if I'm not demonstrating that myself and trying to model that. So I led and created a social emotional program for teenage boys with behavioral disorders for my master's. And one of the things that we did right away to establish some vulnerability and sharing is that um, I started just by sharing a, a random secret with the group as a kind of a challenge. Like, I don't want to hear this rumor going throughout the school, but I just want to know whether this is a safe place. And so I'm going to test it out. And so I I do kind of actually feel a bit embarrassed, but I I can own it now. Um, is that like, sometimes I shave my chest hair and that was what I told them. And uh, they loved it. That was, that was like just a very simple surface level way of demonstrating mm-hmm. vulnerability.
2: In that one, I want to pause there for a second because in that one, by sharing that secret, you're also basically conveying, you know what? I am vulnerable to all these messages outside as well i get these messages on what a guy should look like and what's attractive and this is how i respond to that so right away they're like yeah he's and i'm sure there's guys in the circle going "Uh uh-huh yeah me too
3: exactly and that's the thing about i think about being human but let's talk about men but being a boy or man and trying to figure out what masculinity is in your relationship with it it is full of contradictions and tensions Mm. and acknowledging those is such an important way I think to help the dialogue be less polarizing and just more honest my a good example is one of my colleagues researched violence against children and he as an adult like he's very um pacifist like he's an activist of being a pacifist (laughs) but um he's like when I think about all the fights I got into, I still think about that with pride and I hold that tension that like, I am proud of, like, I, I think about getting in fights and beating up. And there's a part of me that like, kind of feels okay about it, even though that my adult self, I'm actually against that. And so there's this cognitive dissonance that we all have and these tensions that we all have and try to reconcile. And it's important to acknowledge that because yeah. I think there's a lot of complexity. Um, and I think sometimes you can go too much into the complexity where you lose sight of what the actual forest is. But I also think there's a danger of just looking at the forest and not looking in at an individual tree and understanding the tree.
2: Do you think that acknowledging that complexity and this kind of tension is an important key in having honest conversations with boys and, and, and creating spaces where they may feel more comfortable to be themselves
3: 100 percent. i know it, not everyone agrees with me but one of the reasons why i don't like the word or i definitely don't use the word toxic masculinity is not because i think toxic masculinity is saying all boys and men are toxic um, i know a lot of people think that is what it's saying i think it's saying that there's harmful aspects associated with some forms of masculinity that can be toxic but i do think that Um, erases a ton of complexity. And if I talk about specifically emotional Uh. restriction, um, I think what we just talked about to start this conversation about the reasons why teenage boys start to restrict their emotions is not because it's toxic. It's because it's strategic and helpful to their context. And so I'm okay saying that there are restrictive forms of masculinity that can lead to toxic behaviors. Um, but I, I think it's an important nuance to prize apart. But I know that the main critique to the term I use, which is restrictive forms of masculinity or restrictive masculinity, the main critique is that people don't, some people don't feel like it's, it's severe enough to speak to the level of what they identify as some very harmful mm. behaviors.
1: Well, it's a continuum. It's just a continuum. And I think I I love this description, actually, because I guess it makes, I don't want to, I don't know if it's normalizes it, but it just makes it more um, closer to home. I think that parents could identify with, and Jen chime in here, with restrictive masculinity in regards to your son rather than toxic masculinity in regards to your own sons.
2: Well, and I like what Brendan said too, right? I mean, through my reading and research, I understand that the phrase toxic masculinity, I don't believe was ever meant to say masculinity itself is toxic, but I do know that a lot of people hear and interpret it that way, including boys. So, If this is not a helpful way to talk about it with our boys, let's not use that. Let's use something else. And, Brendan, on a different podcast, I heard you say something about um, you said that harmful messages of masculinity can create a fragmented self, a, a, a breaking apart of yourself. And to me, this relates to this idea of restrictive masculinity because, like, there's a whole. And when you start restricting parts, And almost cleaving parts of you off. The idea that there is a young teenage boy in his bedroom, you know, really dealing with this fragmented self and breaking apart and making. That's a lot. That's a lot that's going on with our young men.
3: Yeah. Yeah. One of the most surprising findings for me in my research was that every boy that was highly emotionally restricted remembered when and why they started to restrict their emotions I mm-hmm. thought there'd be some that were like you know I'm just kind of always this way but none of them said that they all could identify a time period and so I what I'm curious about is whether as they age they might forget that because one of the boys said I'm right. starting to forget my emotional self mm-hmm. but obviously in the, in order to say that you haven't actually forgotten it you have to actually have some awareness that you had an emotional self that yeah. you are losing or to say that I'm starting to forget my emotional self.
1: We'll pause for a moment for these messages and be right back. This episode is sponsored by By Heart.
2: Babies need to eat and whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, use formula, combine all of the above, you need options. We wanted to let you know about ByHeart baby formula. ByHeart has a patented protein blend that gets the closest to breast milk. It includes two of the most abundant proteins in breast milk, and ByHeart actually ran a clinical trial comparing their formula to a leading infant formula and proved that babies on ByHeart have softer poops, less spit up, and easier digestion. Byheart is also the only US-made infant formula to use organic grass-fed whole milk. So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider Byheart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code onboys at byheart.com. That's B-Y-H-E-A-R-T.com slash podcast, and it is 10% off your first order. Byheart.com slash podcast. This is a limited time offer and additional terms and conditions may apply. What kinds of things were they pointing to as these moments in time, these causes, or not, maybe not, maybe not a cause, maybe a trigger is a more appropriate way of phrasing that.
3: So around the ages of 13 to 15, transition to high school was the most intense time when they felt like the masculine pressures to restrict their emotions and to appear tough were heightened. And I would say that ties in directly with like the social changing landscape. And we know that when, um, when your social peer group is in flux, then more hierarchies can come to fruition because people are trying to figure out where they fit in. And so what can give you more power is fitting in with more established kind of manifestations of respected masculinity
2: anybody who has ever gone to high school in the united states for sure you're you're canadian <laughs> you know this you know there's the cliques you know who's got the power who's the popular people who's not and you also know if you're honest with yourself you look around and you figure out how to play the game and you know that you make choices and sometimes i think a lot of us have memories now of people that were like I really should have been nicer to that person. But at the same time, you knew it was social suicide to do so while you were there. And so our boys are trying to navigate this this environment that they're really determining it might not be entirely safe to be all of me here.
3: Yeah. And there's never going to be a context where you're entirely safe at all. If I talk about the boys that were the most emotionally expressive, it's not like they were just telling everyone their heart. They. I call it emotional safe havens. They had a group of people, relatively small, maybe up to five people, that they felt like they could say anything without fear of judgment. And so the goal isn't to just, I think Brene Brown calls it like emotional floodlighting, where Mm -hmm. that's not actually vulnerability. That's like oversharing. It's a small isolated group of people that you establish trust and safety with. And there's competing stories from my participants about how does that trust be created? Um, Mm. Helpful if they're a female. Some people said it took years to do, but other boys talked about how, depending on the length of the friendship, they almost felt like it was harder to share if they knew the person really well, because they would fear maybe impacting that relationship where they felt like having a newer relationship kind of was a blank slate to talk about things. And you also had some boys that um, were still uncomfortable sharing, but they did it through the use of playing games. Like one guy with his friend, they always feel like it's awkward to start talking about emotions. So they play never have I ever, which is like, Mm -hmm. and one of them is like, never have I ever had depression or something like that. And then they start talking through there. So it's crazy how they came up with it. It's really cool. I think. Yeah. It's adaptive, right?
2: Like here, here's our, Rules, I'm putting air quotes around this, are rules of interaction. Like, we're not going to just come over and make a cup of tea and sit down and start talking about our feelings. We'll do this.
1: So Brendan, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the moms and dads out there who, you know, their sons are maybe going into high school next year and looking ahead, like what can parents do to kind of uh, buffer some of this?
3: Yeah, I think there's a, a couple things that come to mind. The first one that I don't have research to back this up, but there is interesting research done in US colleges, how to reduce binge drinking rates. And all that they did was they did a research about how how many people from these colleges, how much do they actually drink on average? And then they did a campaign just revealing that to students. And they found that university students tend to drink to the level that they assume other people are. And so just hearing the average made, like, significantly reduced their binge drinking rates by, like, over 25% at some colleges.
2: So what you're saying is that the perception a lot of people have is that people are drinking more, partying more than the reality, right?
3: Yes. And so what these teenage boys who I interviewed who are now in grade 12, the ones that were highly emotionally restricted at the beginning of high school, they thought they were the only ones that felt that way. But they have all come to the realization that they think, oh, I think a lot of other boys, if not all other boys actually felt that way and maybe still do feel that way. And I was able to find emotional safe havens, other people weren't, but they had this awareness that like, guys have this emotional internal world inside, regardless if they show it or not. And so I think it's an important job for teachers, for parents to show the experience of teenage boys for what it is and talk to teenage boys about it. Because if everyone is actually feeling similar things inside, it's not like it's going to magically stop bullying or boys from trying to be these certain ways. But there is so much power in a a male student finding one other male student that like maybe i can talk to that one maybe that guy has a similar experience to me as well and so that's one thing parents can do to buffer um uh, canadian researchers uh gordon Newfeld and Gabor mate have a book called hold on to your kids and they talk about the concept of peer orientation versus parent orientation and mm-hmm. one of the reasons why adolescence is so dynamic is because that is like the first time in a child's life where they become more oriented to their peer group than to their parents and so having non-judgmental uh place to to share and to talk about things and being the things we talked about before being vulnerable yourself modeling it and can you handle your child's distress because teenagers in general but teenage boys are very aware of knowing how to reply to you with what you, they think you want to hear. Um, and they're pretty right. If Oh, if you... I am
2: sure as a, as a former high school teacher of boys, you know that exactly. Sure, they'll tell you what you want to hear. Um, may not have anything to do with what's actually going on in their world or in their life, but they can tell you what you want to hear.
3: And I think the important part is that they assume wrongly or correctly that most people don't want to hear their negative quote-unquote feelings and that's how they talk about it they're they don't talk about sadness and, and anger as negative or sorry they don't talk about sadness and anger as sadness and anger per se they refer to them as negative emotions which shows kind of the slant that they have of emotions whereas emotions aren't emotions should not be themselves categorized as good or bad emotions emotions are all super beneficial and i think we have a very complicated and confused sense And especially we talk about masculinity of what anger is and how to feel anger. And we think that anger is always this aggression. And that's sometimes how it comes out and is manifest predominantly. But like, what actually is at the root of anger and what actually can anger teach us and what is it trying to show us in our bodies and things like that. And so I think there's so many nuances to understand about the emotions themselves. But the assumption that a lot of teenage boys will have is that People do not want to hear or don't care um, about my negative emotions. You
2: know, it is so scary and easy to see this straight line from that to our male suicide rates. When you feel, when a person feels, I don't want to burden other people. Other people don't want to hear my negative emotions. You don't you don't share it because your perception is you are protecting them somehow,
3: or protecting yourself. Yeah, yes, both, both. Because what if, or what would be worse than, um, than not sharing your emotions? It would be worse she, if you actually share them and the person responds terribly,
2: right? Mm-hmm.
3: So it's yes. better in a sense, and I, I totally get it to not share, to not be vulnerable rather than the alternative of revealing something about yourself and that not landing.
2: They either laugh at you, they ridicule you, they uh, get angry at you, they tell you you shouldn't feel that way. And these are really common reactions that a lot of us, not just other kids do to each other, we adults do this to our children too.
3: Exactly. And kids feel this and have it done to them as well as they perpetuate these same circles and cycles themselves, because it's like, I'm, I'm getting cut off from these parts because of fear of judgment. And if i see another kid doing that, well, that they have a choice then to, to limit them and try to restrict them or not. And I think one of the fascinating things I also found was that all the boys who are highly emotionally expressive, have at one point in their lives, or many points in their lives, especially early on in high school, felt a bit ostracized or a bit different than the rest of the teenage boys because of being a bit more emotional or emotionally expressive. Ah. But the boys that didn't talk readily, although they feared judgment, and this could have just, w- I'm just surprised that this never came up, but none of them actually had a tangible example of when they had been judged for it by their peers it was a primarily a perception that they would be judged like oh i can't tell my friends i'm gonna lose everything is what
2: boys told me yeah i'm really curious now you said it before you were once a teenage boy Mm -hmm. what was your experience like you know when you were entering high school um did you enter emotionally restricted um did you take the chance and share with other people how did you try and navigate all of this going on you know protecting yourself while trying to fit in what was your experience
3: yeah this research brought up a lot of reevaluation of my experience because my high school experience ended super well the last couple of years but grade 8 and 9 was terrible and i didn't realize how terrible it was until reflecting on it Um, just, you got zits, you got acne, you're in a school with bigger kids. I, um, the only thing that was my saving grace during that time period was being involved in sports. And that was giving me some positive interaction. I liked academics of school as well. Um, but sports gave me some friend group and a level of a group to fit in with. I was really big into volleyball. I played that through to a decently high level for sure in high school. And it's always interesting because people always said, oh, that's the gay sport. So that out of all the sports, there's a, still a hierarchy of what's more masculine <laughs> or less masculine. But at the same time, when you can jump really high, that helps <laughs> Like in right. teenage language. Like, great, I can jump really high. Oh, I can touch the ceiling in the hallway. Great. Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> We are all right now, if if you have a tween or a teenage boy or you had one, you know that they always jump up to try and touch the door jam or try and touch the ceiling. This is a thing that boys do.
3: That's yeah, true of this boy, for sure.
2: So, you know, grades eight, and nine were kind of tough for you, but you did have a little bit of a protective bubble. Um, you said high school ended really well for you. What happened between eight and nine and, you know, senior year? You grew into yourself. Certainly that helps.
3: Like there's some very context specific things that happened, which won't make sense on a wider scale, but there was a school that used to end by grade 10. And then all of the kids from that school, which was known as basically the, it was a public school, but it was basically the private public school where like all of the kids with super involved parents would go because it was safer for their child. And then they went to my terrible high school. And in that group, I found a lot more emotionally expressive
2: Uh.
3: guys in my experience. And so then that was great.
2: You said something earlier I wanted to come back to. You were talking about kind of the importance of normalizing for kids. Like, you're not the only one going through this, Uh, you know, understanding context, um, experience. One of the things that has been challenging for me as I've been raising teenage boys over the last you know, number of years, as an adult, especially as an adult female, so many of us adult females were like, we know exactly what we don't want our guys to be like. You talk about those harmful aspects of masculinity. We know them and we are hyper alert for instances of them in our sons. And we want to sort of squash that behavior and we want them to be emotionally expressive and all of these things. But as females, we don't have the same uh, context or experience of understanding all these competing pressures of masculinity that these guys are dealing with. And so I think that it is can be, I'm thinking out loud here, I think it can be damaging for parents to just come at this from, this is the version of masculinity that I want to see from you without realizing and thinking about the context in which our boys are operating and what they are trying to do to stay safe within their environments does that resonate for you?
3: I would say that there's two things that need to be kept into balance one is what you talked about is is that generally speaking this would be more to unpack is that people don't experience their personal experiences. At a sociological level, meaning, generally speaking, people don't view their behaviors as connecting to a larger scale of how this fits in with uh, maybe harmful forms of masculinity or things like that. People think about their own experiences. And one thing we haven't talked about is the third reason why boys emotionally restrict had nothing to do with masculinity, but had to do with trauma, about being close mm-hmm. to someone in their lives. And then that ended dramatically. And so they don't want to get close to someone again because they know how much pain that felt so i think it's important to look at those individual factors but to balance that and i have a fairly a very hard line in the sand of seeing when does your beliefs around masculinity or your behaviors around that when does that dehumanize other people put restrictions on other people and that i think does need to be addressed in a way that's not like like so understanding like context has to end at a certain point. Like for instance, one of a boys I had a great relationship with in high school, he, in my program, super emotionally vulnerable, had a like one like an alpha male type attitude. All the guys respected him. He got expelled during that school year and he needed to be for a behavior that he did, hurt someone else in a very bad way. And so you still have to be like, this, this is a line in the sand where I understand because he opened up to me, I understand his trauma and individual context. And my wife is a trauma therapist and I know early on in her career, she told me one time about how hard it was to like, you understand, when you understand someone, you understand so much about why a person thinks the way they do to do certain behaviors. But the thing she always said was like, You're not responsible for the pain or the trauma that happened to you, but you are responsible for healing. And so holding the context piece, I think is so important to humanize boys and men, but also holding the social responsibility for when that hurts and dehumanizes other people. So think of objectifying, sexualizing women, things like that.
2: I think that's a brilliant line to talk about because Watching my boys, and this this is just my experience, I'm sure other parents have had the same experience, you know, watching them navigate the world, I have heard them say and do things, you know, using gay as a slur. You mentioned, you mentioned it with volleyball, you know, that's the yeah. gayest sport, which clearly the implication was there's something wrong with you as a guy playing that sport. So I get why the boys are using that in their context because they're trying to protect themselves and get status and at the same time I am always going to call it out and say that's not okay that's not okay that's not okay to use it that way is that the kind of thing you're talking about and certainly harm to other people certainly
3: yeah that's that's a good example and I think that the most recent conversation that I've had with teenage boys is I came across a, a group of teenage boys who were um, skipping school, and I actually ended up—I I don't think they even know this—I knew their teacher, um, but suffice to say, I was talking to them, and because I was just curious, want to talk about masculinity whenever I get the chance, and then one of them kind of whispers to me like, "What do you think of Andrew Tate?" And how I respond to that question. Can either encourage communication or it can shut down like they want to read my reaction to a very controversial figure and the figure i would i'm very okay saying is misogynistic and sexist but i think having those conversations with curiosity and not immediate judgment but like w- wanting to hear what they think and yes, asking them am- genuinely hearing what they think and why they like him and and then we had a great conversation and then they finally, after they'd said their opinions about him, which if you're curious generally went into three camps, the first two boys, some boys didn't like anything that he said, but had a hard time not seeing his content on social media all the time. Right. Even if they didn't like him at all. Then the second group of boys was like, uh, uh, he has some decent things to say, but they didn't like what he said about women. And then there's a couple boys that kind of agreed with everything he said, but I got it. Then they asked me about what do I think? And I said, well, here's why I think he's an attractive figure for some boys. And here's why I think he's problematic. But then that gets, I think that creates a conversation that encourages more critical thinking and assessment about it rather than having the policy that like, let's shut this down, let's not, like, this is like this is wrong, this is bad. I'm not saying there aren't things that are wrong and bad um, with Andrew Tate, but if you shut it down, it almost creates an aura of, like, okay, what is so wrong about him? And I think how this plays out in social media is that, depending on the hard line you that you take, and if there's no room for conversation, just shutting it down, then you have these boys that, maybe didn't even hear Andrew Tate at all, but then you are exposed to him through the algorithm so much. And you hear something that he says, that's just like personally motivating. Like it's not radical in any way. And you think, oh, maybe it's overblown about the sexist things that he said. And so I, I just always, as a teacher, when kids use language like gay and things like that, Or say something that's racist. Like I, I'm of the opinion to have a conversation about it in a way that's safe. Like I'm not going to have a conversation about it in front of the whole class, Mm -hmm. depending on the situation. But I am curious. I want to hear more about why they said what they said. What did they think about it? Let's talk. That's probably more annoying in a sense for a kid, because (laughs) (laughs) like it's easier to be like, "Hey, don't say that," from a teacher. That's easier than be like, "Hey." Why do you say it? What's going? What's you actually? What's the belief behind the the statement?
1: Well, and that isn't that what the teenage brain is developing is forming their opinions and backing up their opinions with their emotions and their their belief system and trying on different things. And I think that this can be a place where parents get worried and frustrated because their son's coming home and saying, you know, oh, I love Andrew Tate or whatever it might be. And and to, rather than shut it down, as you said, it's like, got to get curious and help him explore what brought him to that opinion. Is it because your friend thinks that or what are the other reasons? And just have the conversations and be open without shutting them down.
2: I love that you shared that specific example because For one, that's not something we haven't talked about, Andrew Tate, on the podcast. And yet, if you have a teenage boy, he is in your son's um, radius. He's in your son's environment. This has come up. And a lot of us, even those of us who know that, we're like, well, we don't really know what to say about that. Uh, Simply saying he's a horrible person is not enough. Like you mentioned it's like when you try and totally forbid a kid from seeing a friend that almost always is going to backfire almost always um and the fact that like that boy asked you that they're looking they're looking for other opinions and they kind of want to have those conversations he was you're right he was feeling you out. what was your reaction you know what did you say right at first i'm curious uh the first thing i said
3: I think I said, oh, I'll
2: have a lot of feelings and a
3: lot of thoughts about Andrew Tate. Um, I would love to hear you guys first before I share. And they then did.
2: Yeah. I love this. We need to get going pretty soon. Um, we've been talking for a long time, but I'm so intrigued by your work. And um, I'm going to ask you one question, and then we're going to point some people to some of your work. You mentioned, you know, emotional safe havens. And how important that is for boys. What are some things that we adults, whether we're male or female, moms, dads, coaches, educators, what are some of the things that we can do to become emotional safe havens for our boys?
3: The first thing I think is actually for parents, for adults, educators to become their own emotional safe havens first. And what I mean by that is that. Even the boys in my research that had emotional safe havens, there was a difference between those boys that had that versus the boys that also I could tell were their own emotional safe havens, meaning that they were very comfortable not just talking with other people, but with actually sitting with and being with their hard feelings, with their grief that came up from a dog dying, from breaking up with a girlfriend, things like that. And so I'm a big fan always of looking in the mirror and so I, th- I think Brene Brown says that one of her more controversial things that like she always gets pushed back about is that your ability to love your child is limited as ultimately limited by your ability to love yourself. And so an aspect of loving yourself is getting to know yourself and being with your emotions. And I talk about how like, yeah, I research at a PhD level about emotions, which I can understand up here, but that is so different than actually being with my emotions.
2: Janet and I are both nodding because, you know, we have personal experience with this listeners. You've heard us say this before, like the ultimately the first thing you need to do is deal with your own stuff. And of course, Brendan, you know, I ask you, how can you create and become an emotional safe haven? And you had to say the hardest thing first, but it is the most important, right?
3: Yeah. Because then Then you're not thrown off when your child is in emotional distress yes. because you know what it's like and you can empathize and you you can just be with it. And that's such a powerful thing if you can, as a parent, see your child and your child can feel seen and heard and safe. And you got to feel that for yourself, too. So, yeah, it's all personal work.
2: I'm thinking about our friend Katie McPherson, Janet. And she said something when we talked to her, when I talked to her for an article on suicide prevention that will forever resonate with me. Our kids don't need us to carry them out of the ditch. They need us to sit in the ditch with them. Mm -hmm. And that does take a lot of dealing with our own stuff and being able to sit with another human's discomfort, whether we're talking about our kids or we're talking about a fellow parent, being able to sit with another human's discomfort, I think, is the most loving thing that we can do on this planet. And yes, I'm tearing up talking about this, but that's how much it it resonates with me.
3: Especially when it's inconvenient to do so. Mm. That's the hardest thing for me.
2: Right? Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, I want to mention, you wrote and released an album about masculinity. Listeners, this sounds strange, but bear with us here. Tell us about this, Brendan.
3: Songwriting is a way that I process life. And I know that maybe there'll be five people that read my PhD thesis. And I thought I wanted to do something more. I will say that I'm, I don't want to undersell myself, but I definitely don't want to oversell myself. I'm just average, an average singer. And so I wrote an album that goes through um, a boy's life, a fictitious boy's life from birth to old age. And each song connects with a major theme found in the research or from my exact research. And of course, there's some like the last song specifically, because I think the last song has a lot of my own personal story in it, Um, because I think ultimately when you get through life, I had a hard time writing that last song about old age because it really depends on your trajectory and your choices you made Mm -hmm. up to that point. And so it was an endeavor I think for all humans, as you go through life, to become more authentically who you are. And so the last song isn't based on research, but just my own authentic beliefs and experiences at this point in time.
2: And tell us the name of your album, tell us where listeners can find it and where they can find that PhD dissertation uh, if need be and read it, or also just keep up on your other work.
3: All the links for everything are from my website, remasculine.com. So like R-E-masculine, like regarding masculinity. My PhD will be uploaded there as soon as the University of Edinburgh publishes it.
2: Brendan, thank you so much for sharing um, your heart, your research, and your experiences with us today. I appreciate it. And I know the teenage boys that you work with appreciate it as well.
3: Thanks for having me. I love the conversation.
1: Thanks, Brendan. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and found value. Please share it with a friend. And as always, thank you for supporting our sponsors. Doing so allows Jen and I to bring you this podcast. We are On Boys, my co-host Jennifer L.W. Fink of BuildingBoys.net, and I'm Janet Allison of BoysAlive.com.